May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I went to print my sermon out this week, and instead of printing it on regular paper for some reason, I accidentally selected cardstock. Um, I don't know if this is because I have to read it back to myself on several occasions, or because maybe he, the Lord wants to keep it around for a little bit longer, or just because I'm a fool, I don't know. One of those might be true. They all might be true. Uh, the story, that this uh, old, uh, second lesson today, the epistle lesson, uh, tells us about Paul, who was a missionary journey a missionary uh, uh, priest, rather, who was the first one to go into Europe. Uh, Paul, Paul's missionary work in Europe began in Macedonia, and then from Macedonia he went south into Greece, stopping at cities like Athens and Corinth. Um, if you're familiar with ancient Greece, and, and most of us are to some degree, you know that Athens was sort of a center of learning for the Western world. It was a, it was a place where philosophers and rhetoricians Artists and architects all uh, kind of gathered, and that was a, a hub for that sort of um, thinking. And, and uh, it, it was a, an important city around the world. About 50 miles to the west from Athens, maybe 60 miles, is the city of Corinth. Corinth was a very significant city in Greece, uh, much like uh, Athens with all of its philosophers and its rhetoricians, its artists and architects and so on. But it was, it was significant because it was on the isthmus there between the northern part and southern part of Greece, and it had two important ports, uh, one to the east and one to the west. And so commercial activity was really important in Corinth, and it was perhaps the most important port city in ancient Greece. Corinth, because of its commerce, because of its metropolitan kind of feel, became a city that was um, known for its lasciviousness as well. Uh, it was said to behave like a Corinthian was something of a byword for a person with loose morals. Uh, the ancient, uh, or the late scholar, rather not ancient scholar, but the late scholar F.F. F. Bruce uh, wrote, the city that is of Corinth, thanks to its maritime commerce, enjoyed great prosperity. It required a reputation for luxury, and its name became proverbial for sexual license. Corinth was to the ancient world what perhaps Vegas is to ours. It was sort of the original sin city, if you were. Um, and of course, naturally, Paul goes to plant a church right there in the middle of that city. He does, and he, the church begins to thrive. At first, it's uh, mostly among the Jews, but then uh, gradually more and more Gentiles, uh, people native of Greece, became part of the church, and it began to thrive. Paul stayed a year and a half in Corinth uh, after planting that church, and then went on to continue his missionary work. When he left, he put people in charge, the people who would, um, would organize the church for worship and for um, teaching and instruction. Now, in the ancient world, there were no church buildings. People met in homes. And so the church of Corinth was really many churches, churches spread all over the town. There were different gatherings, people who would gather in one home or another um, to worship and to learn. And each one of these homes would have somebody who was in charge, somebody who would instruct and shepherd. This person was a pastor. Um, and then there were other people who would serve in the church alongside. It would be more than 100 years before the very first church was built. And it would be 200 years before churches became, uh, church buildings became a regular norm in the Christian religion. For a long time, for at least 200, 300 years, people met in homes. Now, when Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians, it's a, uh, 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 
is actually his second letter. He had written a letter that we don't have. We're desperate to find it. We would love to read what is in that letter, but we don't have it. What we have is 1 Corinthians, and we know that he tells us about it in 1 Corinthians, a former letter. So we know that it exists. He's got reports, reports from Chloe's people, people who met in a woman called Chloe's home. We don't know if Chloe was a pastor or she simply had the largest house and she allowed people to meet there. Whatever the case, some people from Chloe's house go to Paul in Ephesus and tell him about things that are going on in the church. There's a lot of infighting house to house, sometimes within the houses. There's a lot of divisiveness. There's all kinds of problems that are going on. There's actually Christians who are suing other Christians in, in, in the public courts. Um, there are people who are, um, who are involved in rampant immorality. There's all kinds of unruly worship. There's the abuse of spiritual gifts. So if you go through 1 Corinthians and you just like page through, it's like one problem after another after another. If you've noticed that nobody ever names their church the Corinthian church, there's a reason for that. This is not what you would think of as a paradigm of virtue. These are people who were just, you know, coming right out of paganism and becoming Christians. Paul writes his first letter then to sort of deal with this, pardon the idiom, train wreck of a church. Um, I know it's a bit anachronistic because trains aren't invented for another 1900 years, but you get the idea. This church that is really kind of messed up. And some people, I, I, have you ever noticed this? That there are people that if you tell them that they're wrong, they don't like to hear that. Have you, have you noticed that in your life? Occasionally that somebody hears that, that they've done something wrong and they don't want to hear that. We have an amazing ability as human beings to defend ourselves against anyone who would challenge us. Even if we are in point of fact quite wrong. People start saying things about Paul. Actually, you can tell. You can pick it up. If you read him closely, you can see what they're saying. He's short and ugly. Well, he's along one of those people, right? He, he's, got, he's, he's not very good to look at. He's hard to listen to. Um, he, he thinks he's a god. He's a king. He's a boss. He's in it for the money. These are the things they say about him. Others are hold true. They're like, no, Paul is he's a good and a faithful apostle. Some say, well, he's an okay apostle, but he's sort of a junior apostle. You know, he's like, he's like a Cub Scout apostle. He's not a Boy Scout apostle. He's, he's second tier at best. So I like St. Peter. I'm, I'm more of a person who follows Cephas. And others are like, oh, no, have you heard Apollos? He's a great preacher. I'm an Apollos kind of person. And others said, you know, I follow Christ. I don't need any of these leaders. I'm just me and Jesus all the way. Does any of this sound familiar to you? <laughs> have you heard any of this? Yes, it started a long time ago. And for some reason, it still can't be drowned out. Today, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, having written a very stern letter, we think there might even be a letter between 1st and 2nd. So the time we get to 2nd Corinthians, we're really dealing with 4th Corinthians. Um, but we only have two. In his second letter, Paul begins to respond to some of these claims. And his response is this. Do you want to know how to test our apostleship? Do you want to know how to say whether or not our apostleship is true or not? He defends his ministry among the Corinthians. And here's how he does it. The first thing he does is he says, look at what we preached. Look at our message. Will you take your bulletin with me and turn to the epistle lesson? The very first verse is verse 5 in, in the epistle lesson, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. 
Paul writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In Paul's ancient Greek, um, sentence structure is quite different than English sentence structure. In English, we like to do subject, verb, predicate, or subject, uh, subject, predicate, object, excuse me, subject, predicate, object. Right? Um, we, this is the way we want our sentences to flow. It's the way we make sense of things. We always begin with the subject. What did the subject do? And to what or to whom did the subject do it? Right? This is the way we... we. But in, in ancient Greek, you don't do that. You put the part of the sentence you want to emphasize at the beginning. You find the subject by the way that it's written. It's an inflected language. Here's the way Paul... I translated it literally. Here's what... It, or a word-for-word type of an approach... For not ourselves we preach, but, and this is the strong advertisement in in Greek, the strongest way you can have the strongest force of, of opposite. For not ourselves we preach, but Jesus Christ. Not ourselves that we preach. Authentic Christian ministry begins by pointing to Jesus. Paul says, how do you know that our, our, our witness is true? Because we did not point to ourselves. We pointed to Jesus over and over. I was having supper with somebody last night, and um, I was talking about Karl Barth. Do you talk about Karl Barth at supper? Because you should. <laughs> Karl Barth was a, a theologian in the mid-20th century, um, uh, and he was brilliant. I mean, just absolutely brilliant, regarded by many people as the most brilliant theologian of the 20th century. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives him a run for his money, but let's not quibble over that. Karl Barth was asked by a student at the University of Chicago during a Q&A session. You know how divinity students think they're really bright. Um, and the divinity student says to, uh, to Karl Barth, he says, if you could distill your entire theology into a single sentence, what would that be? And Barth, without missing a beat, said, it is what I learned upon my mother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus, the beginning and the end of our ministry. If we have any sort of proclamation to the world, it is not about ourselves. It is about Jesus. And this is what what Paul says. Remember what I have proclaimed among you. Jesus is Lord. If we do theology, a way of understanding God, it should always begin top down. From God to us. Not the other way around. And let me tell you, the biggest problem in the church in the West is that we start from the bottom and work our way up. We do bad theology because we do really good anthropology. We understand humanity really well. And we have a remarkable ability to defend almost anything we want to. And so we defend all of our bad behavior and make a God who fits it. That is not the Pauline approach. It's beginning with God and conforming humanity to that. Paul says, we preach Jesus. It's not about ourselves. It's always about Jesus. What did Paul tell about himself? What though did he do, he and his friends, that we are servants for your sake? Dula, servants in Greek, slaves. The second mark of Paul's authenticity is that he was a servant. He and his friends were servants. They were doing ministry. That's what ministry means, right? To do service. That he was a servant to the people. He did not go to Corinth to build an enterprise, to start a club, to become president of the local whatever, Corinthian Kiwanis. He was not there to do that. He was there to found the church. 
But I thought about how ministry works in different ways, how servants work in different ways. There's different types of servants, aren't there? Suppose after you leave here today, um, you strike it lucky and you get to go out to lunch. <laughs> you, get, you get to go out to brunch and you sit down at a table and somebody's going to come up to you, a young man or young woman probably, and they're going to be your server. You're going to say to them whatever it is that you want. And their job is not to give you what you need, but what you want. I would like to have two cherries in my drink, um, hold the mushrooms on the chicken, extra cheese on the salad, you know. And they're supposed to do it exactly like you say, because they're your server. You're the boss. Hopefully you're a nice boss. And hopefully you tip well and you're done. But you are the boss. You give the orders. They do what you're supposed to do. There's another kind of service, though, isn't there? A slight variation. Look at that verse again for me, will you? That that very first verse. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, this is a little awkward bit of translation going on here because what Paul uses for Jesus' sake is actually just a little little, um, preposition that really means through, on account of. We are your servants through Jesus. We are your servants on behalf of Jesus. Jesus is the master, not the one receiving the service. Do you see that? It's not that they are, that Paul and his companions are servants to the Corinthian Christians who are then the lords over them. They are the servant to Jesus who is the Lord over them and they render service to Jesus through the people, by serving the people. Um, I had a former professor who wrote this great little book um, and it's, it's sort of revolutionary in terms of the way that it makes you think about ministry and service. He says that the ministry that we do is really the ministry of Jesus. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus did not serve people. Jesus always served the Father. Read through John's Gospel and look real carefully. I only do what the Father shows me to do. I do what the Father reveals for me to do. This is what Jesus goes about. And so there are lots of people who get healed. Miracles happen. But there are a lot of people who don't get healed. Miracles for whom do not occur. Because Jesus' service is to the Father. And so what Dr. Siemens would always say is that we do the ministry of Jesus to the Father through the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church and the world. Our service is upward. I hope I don't fall off this palace pulpit. Our service is upward, not outward. Okay, the effect is to go outward, right? And to do service for people, but it is service to the Father. One more way. Not only was the message authentic and the service authentic, but look at the third one with me. Verse 8. You see that few lines down in there? Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work, at work in us, but life in you. The third mark of Paul's authenticity is their willingness to suffer. 
for the gospel. They're willing to suffer for the gospel. They are afflicted. This word means to be squeezed or pressed, but not cornered. They're afflicted, they're persecuted, they're struck down, they're caring about death, all these things. The work of the apostle was not easy work. It's not easy now. It may be easier, but it's not easy. Paul and his companions were witnesses to Jesus, and they suffered very real persecutions, very real imprisonments, thrown into prison with no certainty that they would be released. They knew that the crimes that could be charged against them were capital offenses. They could be killed. They could be executed. And Paul, tradition tells us, actually was, that he was beheaded for this very act of, of spreading the gospel. The credibility of their ministry ought to have been clear by the content of what they said. It ought to be clear by the manner in which they did it in willing to serve. But if for no other reason their credibility ought to be established in that they were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We're afflicted, yes, we're not crushed. We're confused, of course we are, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but we're not defeated. We're struck down, but we get back up. We are suffering, have suffered, We know we will suffer, but we have not lost hope. We have not lost joy. We have not lost happiness. Here's the big payoff. We're all called to be servants. Not just clergy people. Not just people who put their shirts on backwards and take a little white collar in front of it. If you're baptized, you're called to be a servant of Jesus Christ. In the same way that I am. I think clergy, we forget it. It's easy for us to forget People dress us funny, then they call us things like reverend, father, rector, which means ruler. That's the funniest thing ever, isn't it? Um, if, you, if you move in the ranks, you might become, you know, the very reverend, the most reverend, the right reverend. People begin to kiss your rings and take a knee in front of you and all these sorts of things. And we forget that we're called to be servants. We're called to be servants, to be ready to be treated like one. And we forget that we are called to proclaim a singular message, and that is the Jesus of the Gospels. Now, this is the part where it might get a little uncomfortable, okay? But just bear with me. The message of the the Gospels, the Jesus of the Gospels, is not the Jesus of our world. It's not the Jesus of our culture. It's not the Jesus of any economic system. It's the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Which means it's not the Gospel of the Republicans or the Democrats or the Socialists or the Communists or the Marxist, or the other ists that I've forgotten. (laughs) It's not those Jesus. It's the Jesus that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I wrote one time over the the season of Lent that I pray that the Jesus that we find in the church is the same Jesus we find in the Gospels. And that sometimes is hard to find. A Jesus who says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are mourned. Blessed are the gentle." Where do you see that in our world, in our culture? Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. These sorts of Jesuses. Um, I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. And so if you remember it, pretend like it's the first time you've ever heard it. Um, I read uh, uh, Robert Fulgram, uh, you know, the, uh, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten fellow. He, he wrote uh, this story about uh, being in um, a, a, a class in, as a university student. He said it was a summer intensive. I don't know if you've ever had those, those summer intensives that last just like two weeks and they cram like a whole 15-week semester into two weeks. And he said that he, it's uh, Professor Papadouris was a class on Greek culture. 
at the end of the class, the professor said, are there any questions? And Fulgram says, there are nothing but questions. Like, we have so much material up in our head, but, but no one can think to ask. We just want to get out of that room. And Fulgram says, like a knucklehead, he said, I lift my hand and I say to the professor, what's the meaning of life? And everyone burst out into laughter as if I was telling a joke, and they all gather their stuff to get to, to leave. And, and Professor Papadouris, he says, looked at me and realized that the question was an honest one. And so he stopped the class from getting up. And he said, wait, just a quick story to tell. He said, when I was a young boy, we lived in a very poor village, and we were poor people, and I didn't have many toys to play with. And one day I'm out, and I, I discover this, this crashed German army motorcycle. And beside it was the rearview mirror, and it was all broken, and I tried to put it back together, but I couldn't. So I just took the largest piece with me, and he said, I began to rub it against a stone and realized that I could curve it around. And after a while, I'd, I'd made it into a circle, a, a complete uh, circle, and, and I would carry it around with me. And he said, and, and then I began to have this little game where I would try to reflect light down into dark places, like your corner where no light would shine. I would, I would try to get cornered uh, light down into it. And he said, and about this time, Fulgram says, he, he reaches in his pocket, the professor does, and pulls out his wallet and reaches in his wallet and pulls out what looks like about the size of a silver dollar, a uh, uh, half dollar uh, circle mirror. He says, I grew older, the professor goes on to say, I kept doing this. I just kept playing this game everywhere I went. Uh, you know, I'd get bored, I'd pull out the, the little mirror and try to shine some light. And he said, I realized at one point that this isn't a child's game. This is really the meaning of life. I am not the light, but I am a reflector of light. And it's my job to reflect light into the darkest places that I find. He says, Fulcrum says, and then the professor caught some light with his little mirror, and he shined it right down onto Fulcrum's hands and up into his face. And I only wish I'd have brought a little mirror today because I'd do the same to you. We are not the light, but we are to be reflectors of that light. And then people will know that our service is authentic. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.